Hello again, this is Gareth O'Callaghan welcoming you to the third episode of my new podcast diary for Senior Times. My first podcast for 2021. So I hope you've had a peaceful new year. Uh, I'm cautious of saying happy new year because there hasn't been that much that's happy or that we can describe happily over the last few days. The COVID figures are absolutely terrifying at this stage. And while I remember six weeks ago hearing a number of the medical experts saying that we can expect figures post Christmas to possibly rise above 2000, I don't think for a moment I imagined that they could go above 6,000. I think it's beyond everyone's imagination and comprehension. But the problem is, and the reason for it, is that a lot of people are not listening to what they're being told to do. And as a result, they're putting other people's lives at risk. Vulnerable people, elderly people, people with underlying conditions. And our health service is now very close to a situation where if these figures continue to rise, that our frontline staff won't be able to cope. So let's not allow that to happen. On Monday night, we watched Marion on RTE television. If you haven't seen it, I understand it's available on the RTE player. And the best way I can describe it was that it was a tribute from a husband to the woman he absolutely adored. The man in question was Marion Finucane's husband, John, John Clark, who invited us into his life for an hour and spoke so movingly about how much he loved and how much he misses Marion. There's probably not a single person, certainly of my generation, who have not listened to Marion Finucane. Marion was a tour de force. She was central to making huge changes happen in this country, changes for the better. She was undoubtedly one of the greatest broadcasters we ever had. And during the hour-long programme, we got an insight into Marion at work, Marion at home, Marion away in South Africa doing her work at the centres that they raised money to build for orphan children. But what was central to the programme was John. And John sat there facing the camera, his elbows up in front of him, hunched for quite a lot of the interview, lighting up the occasional cigarette. No one interviewed him. He simply spoke to the camera. He was speaking to me. He was speaking to you. It was all black and white, and it couldn't have been more poignant. It couldn't have been more perfect. It was heartbreaking in places, and yet it was invigorating from the point of view that for the first time, I think, in my life, I listened for an hour to a man talking about his deepest feelings about his heartbreaking life now that his wife is no longer here, about how he gets through each day and struggles with her loss. And he talked so lovingly about the early days when they met. I loved the line when Marion said to him, if my father was still alive, you'd never have got your feet under this table. There was that great humour there as well. But we were never more than a few seconds away from just feeling how deeply this man loved his wife, his best friend, his soulmate. They were like giddy teenagers, he said. He said he remembers they were like two 15-year-olds who just forgot to grow up. And every now and again, you could see that the camera would cut away because he was on the verge of tears, literally on the verge of tears for the whole hour-long monologue. And I go back to saying it again, what really grabbed me and kept me almost stuck in the moment was this man who very few people outside of 
their small circle of friends knew. No one knew Marion's husband. Very few people knew anything about him. And that was the way they preferred it to be. So I think a year after Marion's sudden death, for a man like that, a man who was so private, a man who stayed in the wings, remained in the shadows, except occasionally when you'd see a photograph of him with Marion. For a man like that to come forward and to talk so openly and so honestly and so painfully and so beautifully and lovingly about how much he loved Marion, for me, was just empowering. Because men don't talk. Women talk. Women are in groups. Women have friends. They can pick up the phone. They have little networks that they can get together with. They meet up regularly. Men don't. They don't talk to each other. Yes, of course they talk to each other. They talk to each other about sport, about business, about holidays, about travel, about programs they've heard on the radio, films they've seen on Netflix, but they don't talk about their feelings. And one of the aspects, one of the many aspects I will remember for the rest of my life after watching that program on RTE on Monday, John turned around and did something that men do not do. And as a man, I thank him for that. I've done it for years. I've spoken out. I've written articles on it. I've written articles for newspapers. I've written a book about my experiences with depression, about how difficult it is to be honest. It's very, very difficult to find men who are prepared to sit down and have a conversation straight up, straightforward, honest, from the heart. Forget about football. Forget about work. Forget about holidays. Forget about business opportunities. What about you? What about me? And for me, that was what I took away from that program on Monday night. John spoke about how he was feeling completely devastated, completely alone. And for someone who was so private and for someone who shunned publicity, it must have been a difficult thing for him to do. But watching him and listening to him, you could see by him it was something he wanted to do. He needed to do. He needed to tell people about how he felt. And for that, I for one will be forever grateful to him. I got to know Marion briefly when I was working in RTE. I joined RTE in 1988 and I was presenting a number of programmes on a station called Millennium Radio, which RTE had received a licence to open and run during the Millennium celebrations in Dublin. Dublin was a thousand years old in 19, 1988, yes. And towards the end of 1988, Millennium Radio was pretty much running out of its tenure. And I was beginning to think, I need to get work here. And I'd been trying for a long, long time to get into RTE. And shortly before Millennium Radio closed down, the managing director of radio at that stage, a man called Kevin Healy, gave me a call and said, I'd like you to come in and talk to me. It turned out he wanted me to come and work for 2FM. He was relaunching it. It was being revamped. It was being given a brand new name, new feel, new energy, new life, new purpose. The days of RTE Radio 2 coming at you were long gone now. We were moving into a brand new era. We were competing with the best of them by the end of the 80s. you got to remember 1990, we sent one of the best football teams out there and they very, very nearly did it for us. For all of us, I think we'll accept they did it for us. So Kevin's idea was to modernise RTE Radio 2 to make it slick, 
to make it attractive, to make it a radio station that people would really want to listen to. But it had to be as good as the likes of BBC Radio 1 and BBC Radio 2. People were travelling further afield. People were now travelling backwards and forwards to America. They were commuting to and from the UK. So they were experiencing new radio everywhere they went. So this was the plan that 2FM would be able to compete with the best of them out there. What we actually did, we far exceeded, I think, our greatest expectations. 2FM between 1990 and the end of the decade was a force to be reckoned with. Nothing in the country could compete with the listenership ratings that 2FM were drawing in on a six-monthly basis. And I remember sitting in front of Kevin that morning and he was talking to me about his plans for 2FM. At that stage, if you managed, if you had managed to get a contract to present a show on RTE Radio 2, you had to start on the bottom rung of the ladder. So that meant that if you were a new DJ, you would be given a late night Saturday show or you would be given an early morning Sunday show. You might be given what was called the graveyard shift, which was through the night over the weekends. You might be employed part-time on the basis that you would stand in for the big names when they were away on holidays or wherever. So when Kevin offered me a position on 2FM, I automatically thought that I was going to get a Saturday morning show, which I didn't mind. I would have taken it. The only problem was that I needed an income and one radio show a week was not going to pay the bills. And I loosely explained this to him and I said, and thinking he was going to offer me one show a week and allow me to work my way up, I said to him, I don't think I can afford just one or two radio shows a week. And he said, what are you talking about? I want you to present the afternoon show Monday to Friday. It was originally the drive time show he offered me. And I couldn't believe this. I almost fell out of the chair. So to cut a long story short, within a few weeks, I was presenting my very first radio show on the brand new relaunched 2FM. And I was familiarising myself with all of the wonderful people who worked in RTE Radio. On one side of the building, you had 2FM, and on the other side of the building, you had RTE Radio 1. To cut a long story short, my first ratings came in three months after I started, and let's face it, they were nothing to write home about. In fact, they were pretty awful. And my boss at the time, Bill O'Donovan, brought me in and he said to me, look, this is the first three months, so let's see how the next three months goes. And the next three months were equally as bad. And I felt the reason for that was because I had come from a pirate background where I was pretty much allowed to do anything I wanted to on radio. So we had lots of interactive stuff going on on the pirate radio show, but that was not permitted on the show I was doing for 2FM. I was told you do it this way or you don't do it at all. I tried to explain to my producer that if they just let me be a little bit more creative that maybe the listenership might climb. I knew it would. They weren't so sure and they weren't keen to be too creative and to be too different. So my next set of ratings came in and they were woeful. So I was moved from that show to the lunchtime show following Jerry Ryan. The ratings came in, they were appalling. And I just couldn't get it across to them that if we do things this way, if we change the style of presentation, I promise you we will increase the listenership. But they were saying, no, it's not really what we do here. We don't want to sound like the pirates. Meanwhile, Jerry Ryan was saying to me, for God's sake, man, what are you doing? 
I used to listen to you when you were on the pirate radio stations. You were electric. Get out there. Be mad. Be bonkers. Show them. Show them how good you are. And I said to Jerry, but I can't just go bonkers. I can't just do what I used to do out of the blue. And he said, well, you're going to have to do something because if you don't, you're not going to be around here very long. And I remember driving home from the radio station that afternoon thinking to myself, I've got to do something or I'm going to be out of work very, very soon. So my boss went on holidays and he took some extended leave because he had some holidays that had built up. So he took a long break. I think he took... I can't remember how long he took, but it was long enough for me to try a few new things on the radio show. So we started bringing in these characters who would call the show. And looking back now, it it was all pretty simple. It was all pretty harmless, but it was fun and it was inclusive and the listenership grew and people started getting involved in the show. We started actually making characters out of real listeners because they wanted to be a part of this. And then I remember Brendan O'Carroll getting involved. Brendan arrived at the radio centre one day with this idea for a radio soap a radio play that would go out every afternoon for about four minutes each day called Mrs. Brown's Boys. And I met him and talked to him about it and my producer at the time, Ian Wilson, agreed that it was very, very funny. But it was just, you know, a bridge too far for the likes of the management who felt that it was too racy. So what we did was we invented a spot on the show every week where Brendan would come in and he would pick out funny stories from the newspapers and from the world news from the previous week and chat about them. And it turned out to be very popular. He endeared himself to the listeners. They liked him. So we decided that was the time to put Mrs. Brown's boys on the radio. We took a chance. I don't think it was a chance. I had listened to some of the pilot shows that we had recorded and I thought it was the funniest stuff I have heard in years. Radio is a wonderful medium. If you can if you can write a play or a comedy or a drama for radio, you're onto a winner because radio is such a selective, subjective medium. It's one-to-one. It's theatre of the mind. People have to visualise what's going on and Brendan was brilliant at doing that. So within weeks of this new style of afternoon show, the ratings were going through the roof. We would run Mrs. Brown's Boys at 4.30 every afternoon and it became so popular that people were literally pulling into laybys, pulling into car parks, they were late for meetings, they were staying on in work, they were leaving work early. One of the great stories was where the prisoners in Mountjoy Prison wrote to the governor of the prison and asked if they could actually move their exercise hour. So in other words, their exercise hour was four to five where they would be out in the prison yard. They asked the governor if they could have their exercise hour from three to four and if they could be locked back up in their cells from four to five. That way they could listen to Mrs. Brown's boys. You could call it a captive audience. The petition that was handed into the governor, I understand, had practically every name in the prison on it, including the prison officers, because it meant that if the prisoners were locked up in their cells, they got a little bit of time to make a cup of tea and to listen to Mrs. Brown's boys. So the governor agreed it was a good idea. And once again, that just reminded me of how popular the afternoon show had become. We were pulling in listenership figures of close to quarter of a million people at one stage, which was unheard of because afternoon radio was like the graveyard of daytime radio. The breakfast show and the drive time show were always regarded as the two most important shows. Breakfast show primarily, of course. And then, of course, you had this 
gigantic chat show for three hours with Jerry Ryan from 9 to 12. Larry Gogan was eternally popular. He kept pulling in phenomenal ratings. So at last, literally, having been handed my final opportunity, my final chance to kid out and show that I could do it, the afternoon show became a success. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Our health service is here for you this winter and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. In 1990, my boss called me in and said, RTE are running a training course for producers, radio producers, who will be trained in how to produce talk shows, news shows, current affairs shows, and I think you should apply to be on the course. Now, at that stage, I couldn't see the merit in becoming a producer because all I wanted to do was be behind the microphone. I wanted to be a presenter. But Bill said to me that day, he said, times are changing. Multitasking is going to be the new expression, the buzzwords over the next few years, multitasking, where you don't just do one thing, you're capable of doing many things. So as well as presenting your radio show, you're capable of working the technology, of editing interviews, of learning how to interview your guests in a way that will appeal more to your listener. So really the whole idea behind the producer training course was to leave you in a situation where you could look after most eventualities in a situation which involved a serious radio show. I applied I was accepted. I think I was one of 15 who started the eight-week course. It was most enjoyable. And I think for me, the high point of the course was where we were given instructions that we had to produce a 40-minute 
documentary on a topic that then would be suitable to play on RTE Radio 1. We could pick any topic, but obviously it had to appeal to an adult audience. It had to appeal to a discerning audience. And some of the documentaries that were put together were just absolutely wonderful. For my documentary, I decided to spend a day with the wife and family of one of the men who became known as the Birmingham Six. His name was Richard Michael Kenny. Those of you of a certain age will remember that back in 1974, two bombs went off in Birmingham, killing many, many people. Two of the city's most popular pubs were targeted. Early evening Friday drinkers, just after a week of working, meeting with friends before they headed home for a Friday evening. And six men were picked up by the police and eventually charged and convicted of the crimes of planting the bombs and murdering these people and maiming hundreds. The two appeals were overturned and the men spent from 1974, from the night they were picked up by the police, until March, the 14th of March 1991, in prison, even though they had nothing to do with the events of that night in 1974. Finally, in the Old Bailey, the Court of Appeal overturned their charges and they walked out the main door of the Old Bailey to hundreds of well-wishers who cheered and chanted. And it was a moment that I will never forget because I was actually on the radio that afternoon on the 14th of March 1991 when the six men walked out hands held high hand in hand and they were free and they had been vindicated. Almost one year before my idea for the documentary to interview Kate McElkenny that was Richard McElkenny's wife was accepted. I was given a small budget I made arrangements with Kate that I would travel to Birmingham, that I would catch the flight from Dublin to Birmingham airport and I would get a taxi from the airport to Kate Michael Kenny's house. Now, what I was undertaking was regarded as madness by many of my friends and workmates. Uh, Richard Michael Kenny at that stage was still regarded as a murderer. So I was told it would be only natural for the police and for the anti-terrorism squad to regard me as a possible sympathiser if I was to go through with this plan of interviewing her and spending a day with her. But that didn't deter me. So what we did was we decided I would take my Marantz recorder, a little portable tape recorder, with my microphone, spare batteries and a number of tapes. And what I did before I left was I wrote on each one of the tapes, Fesh Kjol Final. And the story was that if I was stopped by the police at Birmingham Airport and my baggage was searched coming back, that I would tell them that I had been at a Fesh Kjol in Birmingham and that the tapes contained interviews of some of the winners of the Irish dancing contest. I spent the day with Kate and her family and it's a day I will never, ever forget. It's worth remembering that this was 1990. Richard had now been in prison since November 1974. There was no sign of him being released or any of the other men. Garrett Pierce, their barrister, was working very, very hard to get the charges overturned and to get the men released. They were very confident at this stage that it was imminent, they just didn't know when. Chris Mullen, 
the Labour MP in the UK had written an incredible book called Error of Judgment, which is well worth reading, about the plight of the men and about how the evidence that they were charged on was completely groundless. Kate's house was what I'd call a very busy family home. The day I spent with them, two of her daughters were there. The daughter's children were there and they had just come in from school. So there was homework being done and typically there was plenty of squabbling and there was plenty of singing and there was plenty of playing. The one thing that was missing was Richard and I couldn't help but feel this void, this empty space, like that empty chair at the table. And Kate explained throughout the afternoon, I just left the tape running, how she coped All of these years later, she just still felt as though there was a chance. And that was what she was clinging to. Every day she woke up, every night she went to bed, she reminded herself that she was never going to give up, ever going to give up until her man walked free from that court. I said my goodbyes around tea time, the flight back to Dublin from Birmingham was 7.15. So I checked into Birmingham airport around about 5.30. I had a quick drink. And then I headed for the departures gate. And typically, I don't know what it is, but you're standing at the back of this queue and you instantly think one of those guys is watching me. And I don't know whether it's that they can sense the apprehension that I was feeling or that I was giving off this fear. But the minute I got close enough to the two of them, the two of them pointed to me and one of them said, excuse me, sir, will you just step out of the queue for a moment? We'd like to ask you a few questions. So I was brought into this room. Uh, The door was closed. There was no handle on the inside of the door, which really worried me. There was nothing in the room except a table and three chairs. The one chair I sat on and then two chairs on the opposite side that two other men sat on came in to talk to me. They had taken my passport away and they came in holding my recording Morantz and the tapes and the microphone and they said, what's this? And I said, I was actually here recording some interviews at a fesh kjol. And one of the detectives said to me, is that an Irish dancing contest? I said, yes, it is. Are you familiar with it? And he said, my grandmother used to tell me about these dancing contests. And I said, yes, they're very popular in Ireland and particularly all over the world where there would be large Irish communities. Once again, remembering this was 1990. So he said to me, do you mind if I listen to one of these tapes just for a few minutes, just to jog my memory? And I don't know whether they could see my Adam's apple moving, but I gulped and I closed my eyes and I just thought, what are they going to say to me when they listen to an interview between me and the wife of Richard McElkenny? First of all, they're going to want to know Why did you tell us it was an Irish dancing contest? I have to point out here, I wasn't committing any criminal offence by recording an interview with Kate McElkenny. But my dilemma was, why was I recording an interview? I knew that if they didn't let me go within the next five to ten minutes, I was going to miss my flight. I looked at my watch. It was now nearly five to seven. And the guy was about to slip one of the tapes into the machine when suddenly the door behind him opened and a guy said to him, he said, can I see you out here for a minute? It's urgent. And he looked at me and looked at the tape and he said, oh, I'll, I'll, sorry, I'm, I'm going to have to go here. So we'll, we'll, can you just put that back in your bag there? We'll get you to your flight on time. I would have enjoyed listening to that. Sorry, I can't. Maybe another time. I was never more relieved to get on a plane in my life than I was that evening. All the way back on the flight to Dublin that night, I remember thinking so much about the years that Kate and Richard had spent apart. 
that she had raised her children. Now they had grandchildren. And during all of this time, her husband sat and lived and slept in a prison cell for 17 years for crimes he never committed. And if the death penalty had still been available in British law, undoubtedly all six of those men would have been hanged very soon after they had been convicted of the crimes that they never committed. And I was thinking to myself how it must have felt for him to sit in a cell during Christmas Day, during birthdays, during school graduations. He'd never been there to hold his grandchildren shortly after they were born. He never saw their early years, the days they started at school. He was never there for his own children's graduations, for his own children's weddings. And what I found most difficult of all to imagine was how he coped without Kate and Kate had coped without him. The long, long journeys to places like Lincoln Prison and Longlarton Prison that she had to make by bus, often taking two buses, a journey that would start at five in the morning and maybe end later that night, maybe into the early hours of the following morning. And it was just unbelievable the effect that day had on me, having spent that day with someone I'd never met before in my life, someone who had welcomed me into her home to meet her family and to talk so openly about the man she loved. When I look back in it, it was a fascinating day because I had lived in England from 1983 right through to 1987. So I knew what it was like to be an Irish person living in England during the 80s. It was very intimidating, particularly for a young single man. The police were always suspicious. I think my saving grace was the fact that I worked for radio stations and I worked for a BBC radio station. So that tended to carry a credibility that perhaps I mightn't have had if I'd been working on a building site or working in an Irish pub. But then eventually, on the 14th of March, 1991, Richard McIlkenny, along with the other five men, all of them collectively known as the Birmingham Six, were released. My documentary was accepted, I received commendations, and I passed the requirements laid down in order to qualify as a radio producer. So now I had an extra string to my bow, which turned to my advantage. Shortly after the course, I was asked if I would like to join the production team on Liveline, which was presented by Marion Finucan. And I spent almost a month working with Marion and her team. And I have to say it was such an enjoyable month. Marion was a great listener. I think that probably was her greatest strength on radio. She was also very, very intuitive. And the amount of homework she did for one single interview, the amount of hours that she put into studying notes and reading books and preparing for radio shows was something that most people who listened to her over the years never realised. I think John, her husband, mentioned in the programme on Monday night that Marion had said to him on a couple of occasions, the reason you work so hard is to make it sound so easy. Over the years, we would have occasional conversations. We would bump into each other and our paths would cross in the RTE canteen and we would stop and chat. But our paths really crossed in 2002. I had become quite public about the fact that I was going through periods of depression and had experienced depression over a long period of my life. And Marion called me and invited me to be a guest on her morning show. This was when she presented the morning show Monday to Friday from 9am to 10. 
And at first I was a little hesitant because that meant I was really telling a huge audience. And this was an audience of probably close to three, four hundred thousand people. And Marion convinced me it would be a good idea, that it would help so many people. So I agreed. And I will never forget the morning I sat in front of her. I think it was in Studio 5, which was where she presented her show from. And listening to that familiar signature tune just after the nine o'clock news and her beautiful voice intoning the introduction, hello there and a very good morning to you. And it was a moment I'll never forget. It was a show I'll never forget. And I think a day that changed my life forever because the number of phone calls that they took the number of emails they received. We were still a long way from social media as we know it today. There was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram. Uh, It was still pretty much email or write a letter or pick up the phone and phone the radio station. And they were inundated with calls and with emails and with letters. Out of that interview came the book, A Day Called Hope, which we came together, Marion and I, on the show again, one year later in 2003, when the book had been published. I think there are moments I will never forget. I'll never forget her for how kind she was during the interview and how gentle she was. I remember her husband saying there on Monday night during that programme, Marion said to him, her job was listening. And I could see that on both occasions when she interviewed me. She was probably one of the greatest listeners I have ever, ever met in my life. Our health service is here for you this winter, and we're taking every step to protect you from COVID-19. Our services are open and working, from routine appointments to urgent care. Remember to check your prescriptions and keep a list of your medicines handy. And look out for your Keeping Well This Winter booklet in the post. Visit hse.ie or call HSE Live on 1850 24 1850 for more information. From the HSE. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro smartphone is go to the website seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle. The interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. Don't forget my email address if you'd like to drop me a line. It's garethocallaghan2021 at gmail.com. And in my next podcast... I'll talk a little bit more about my time as a producer in RTE and the time I worked with Gay Byrne back in the 1990s. 
I mentioned in my last podcast that I wanted to talk about the therapeutic benefits and the healing powers of hydrogen. Now, ever since I was diagnosed with this multiple system atrophy, I have been looking at all sorts of alternative treatments. I'm told it's incurable. It possibly is incurable. And the reason I say that is because I don't believe that anybody who has been diagnosed with it has ever come forward and said, I'm cured. But that's not to rule out the probability that one day there will be a cure for MSA. But some time back, I was researching oxygen. And as you know, hyperbaric oxygen treatment is very, very good for some illnesses. It's very therapeutic, it's very beneficial, and it's very healing. And it was through my research on that that I came across the healing benefits of hydrogen. There's no one medicine that fits every disease. I think that's a fact. But there is one that comes very close. I believe that now. It's the most abundant element in the universe and it's called hydrogen or H2. Today, hydrogen is often mentioned as the power source for clean fuel cell cars. It's still a well-kept secret for most but hydrogen has also been shown in some 500 published scientific studies to have therapeutic effects on more than 150 different human diseases and conditions. Hydrogen has been used for years now to help treat a huge number of conditions and illnesses in places like Japan and China and South Korea. Here, it is almost unheard of. I know of very, very few doctors and I know of even fewer consultants who have ever, ever heard of the therapeutic benefits of hydrogen. The health benefits of hydrogen have been reported in almost every organ of the body. Its antioxidant effect is the best understood. It's the smallest molecule in the universe and that fact allows it, unlike any other antioxidants, to get into the trillions of cells that make up the human body, right into the nucleus of the cells and into the powerhouse of the cell, which is called the mitochondria, where free radicals, basically free radicals are the things that cause the most damage to our body tissue and to the body cells. That's where they head for. They head for the mitochondria and the nucleus of each of the cells, and that's where they carry out their damage. So having done a huge amount of research on the power of hydrogen and having read many of the scientific papers, the clinical papers proving its powers to heal, we invested in a hydrogen generator. Paul and I sat down and we thought about it and we had read up on a lot of the documentation and we had done our own research and we had emailed quite a number of locations and individuals in places like China and Australia and we decided, right, we will spend our money on buying one of these generators. The generator arrived about a week before Christmas. I had been taking some hydrogen treatment before that and based on the benefits of that, I decided that we should buy one of these. So it's sitting here beside me. It's probably the size of um, a small bedside locker and it's on wheels. And what I do is I start it up, plug it in, hit the button. It's filled with distilled water, which through quite a complicated scientific process is converted into hydrogen gas. And I connect a cannula to that. I connect the rest of the cannula around my head to my nose and I inhale a controlled amount 
amount of hydrogen for an hour. Then I give the machine time to, to cool down and I can go back to it maybe a half an hour, an hour later, do another hour. And it's permanently here. So if I'm not sleeping too well at night, I can nip downstairs and I can read a book or do a bit of work while I'm actually on the machine, as I call it. And from my own perspective, I can safely say that I feel huge benefits. It is very, very good for pain management. I have found it to be beneficial from a digestive perspective. So in other words, all of the things that are damaged as a result of this neurological condition that I have, this is actually helping to, as it were, undo some of the damage. I'm not going to use the word cure because there is no cure. And if I was to debate the issue with the best neurologists in the world, I'm sure I'd lose. But I do know that whatever the hydrogen is doing to me, even at this early stage, I want more of it. And I want more of it and more of it again. So from that perspective, it's been a very good start to 2021. And I'll keep you posted. And as I say, if you want more information, you can get it online or you can drop me a line. Gareth O'Callaghan, 2021 at gmail.com. I'll be talking more about hydrogen and its benefits for health in the weeks to come. Finally, this episode, I mentioned a book that I came across during one of our regular Sunday visits to Clonakilty. Not anymore, unfortunately. We have to wait now until lockdown is lifted. But it's something we have grown to love driving to Clan and spending the afternoon walking through the streets and dropping in and out of various shops, heading for Inchidani, calling in and saying hello to some friends. And I dropped into Kerr's bookshop a couple of weeks back and picked up a book called The Only Plane in the Sky. It's written by a guy called Garrett M. Graff, The Only Plane in the Sky. And it is one of these books that once you start reading it, I guarantee you, you will not be able to put it down. The author has drawn on new and archived interviews interviews with nearly 500 people who were present in some form in some place on that day in New York. It's a collection of stories and reactions and accounts of that terrible day. For example, we hear the stories of the father and son working on separate floors in the North Tower, the firefighter who rushes to the scene to search for his wife, the telephone operator who keeps her promise to share a passenger's last words with his family, Father Michael Judge, the chaplain who stays on the scene to perform last rites, losing his own life when the towers collapse, the teachers who evacuated terrified children from schools mere blocks from the World Trade Centre. That's just a fraction of some of the individuals who give their accounts of what they remember and where they were and what they were doing on that day. The book is called The Only Plane in the Sky, I've read many, many books about 9-11, and this is by far one of the best. It's called The Only Plane in the Sky, and it's written by Garrett, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T, Garrett M. Graff, G-R-A-F-F. And considering that 2021 marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11, this is a book I highly recommend. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of my podcast diary. Please, in the meantime, until the next time, stay safe, look after yourself and look after each other. From me, Gareth O'Callaghan, thank you for listening. Bye-bye.